You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Uh, Well, we are all familiar with the saying uh, that there's no such thing as a stupid question. And I think we're also all familiar with the fact uh, that that's just wrong, right? I mean, there are lots of stupid questions. It might be true in, in, in sort of a classroom environment, uh, but in the real world, there are definitely stupid questions. Uh, for instance, uh, if you could be a fruit, what kind of fruit would you be? That's a bad question. Uh, or every parent's nightmare. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? That is an annoyingly bad question. Right? There are leading questions and presumptive questions and uh, confusing and pushy questions. There are lots of bad questions. Uh, and it's also true that some questions are just better than others. Right? Some questions are more foundational and important. Uh, questions like, where do we come from? Why do I exist? Will the Longhorns ever win another national championship? What happens after death? What's the meaning of life? Some questions are just better than others. Well, the question asked of Jesus in our passage today is is one of the most foundational and important questions that anyone could ask. Did you hear the, the question that this rich young man asked Jesus? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, That word uh, eternal life is the Greek word zoe, uh, which refers to the divine uncreated life that exists in God. And and, and so this rich young man is asking, what must I do to, to get God's life inside of me? What a great question. And as we continue in our preaching series uh, today in the Gospel of Mark, uh, I want to invite you, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, to consider uh, Jesus' answer uh, to this question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, There are two scenes that we're going to look at in our passage today, and I I want us to look at them uh, separately and see what what each of them teaches us uh, about this issue of eternal life. Uh, the first scene is, is Jesus' interaction with this rich young man. Uh, and in this scene, we're going to see what Jesus says about uh, the path to eternal life. Uh, the second is Jesus' interaction with the disciples afterwards. Uh, and when we look at that, we're going to see what Jesus has to say about the promise of eternal life. Uh, the path and the promise. So if you haven't already, go ahead and open up uh, to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Uh, and, and here in Mark 10, Jesus is traveling around with his disciples doing ministry. Uh, and as he's traveling, uh, he's approached by a man. Uh, now, I, I think it's helpful for us to know a little bit about uh, this guy. Uh, for starters, the passage tells us that he was a wealthy man. He had great possessions. Uh, and in that day and culture... Much like our own, wealth was widely seen as a sign of God's blessing. We also know from other gospel accounts that this man 
was a ruler of some kind. Uh, most likely, he was a leader uh, in the Jewish synagogue. Uh, and, and so, in addition to being prosperous, this man had, had power and influence. Uh, on top of that, uh, he was a young, vibrant man, much like Todd. This guy is ambitious and determined. He, he had a lot going for him. Right? He, had, he had a good resume. And this man evidently had been listening to Jesus and his teaching, and he was really impressed by him. And so he sees Jesus traveling with his disciples, and he, he runs up to him. He rushes up to him, he kneels down before him, and he asks him the million-dollar question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be saved? This man seems earnest and genuine. He seems ready and willing to take action. But as we quickly see from Jesus' response, this man had some deep-rooted misconceptions. And so Jesus is going to get to this man's question, but he's, he's sort of got a bone to pick with him first. Uh, this uh, rich young man referred to Jesus as good teacher, right? And so uh, Jesus challenges him here in verse 18. Uh, Jesus says, uh, good teacher, like, wh- why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. This is a little bit of a confusing response from Jesus. Right? It seems like he's sort of sidestepping the issue here. But I think in reality, he's trying to surface something really important here. I I think Jesus is getting at uh, two things. Uh, First, I think he's uh, confronting this man's understanding of who Jesus is. Uh, He's sort of saying, uh, look, either I'm just a teacher like anyone else, and so that, that title of good doesn't really apply to me, or I'm the son of God. I'm the goodness of God made visible. And so you've got, to, you've got to reckon with that first, Jesus says. And we have to reckon with that as well. Who is Jesus? Was he a wise man with profound teaching that we need to take seriously? Or is he the son of the almighty God who has come to proclaim the very words of God? You see, Jesus knows that we first, we first have to see him clearly We have to reckon with who he is if we are going to be able to truly follow him. And the second thing that I think Jesus is getting at is I think he's confronting this man's understanding of what goodness really is. Jesus is saying, look, don't throw that term around casually. Don't don't misunderstand what goodness truly is because if you get that wrong, if if you get that thing wrong, wrong, you are going to be seriously off course in your life. If your favorite Tex-Mex restaurant was Taco Bell, right, then your understanding of good food and your cravings would be a cheesy gordita crunch. Right? And in a town like Austin, that would be a travesty. Right? There is much better Tex-Mex to look forward to. And I know that's a silly example. But the point is this, what we view as good dictates our cravings. It dictates what we live for, right? And Jesus knows that. 
He knows that. And so he, he challenges this man to examine what true goodness really is. And after confronting his word choice, Jesus now gets to this man's question. The man had asked what he needs to do, right? And so Jesus tells him, he says, well, you know the commands, and he lists them. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Jesus gives him commands five through nine of the Ten Commandments, the ones that deal with how we relate to one another. Now, just keeping half of the Ten Commandments is an extremely tall order, but apparently not for this guy. Right, listen, uh, listen to his response there in verse 20. Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Check, I've done that. What else? What else you got for me? What a hasty and foolish response. Kind of makes, kind of makes me cringe. Like, like, don't you just want to grab this guy and sort of shake him and be like, what are you thinking? How could you be so foolish? Maybe, maybe just try and muster up a little bit of humility here. But I love Jesus' response. He doesn't rebuke the man. He doesn't get angry with him. It says, looking at the man, Jesus loved him. I love that. Jesus speaks out of a, a genuine concern and interest for the well-being of this man. And, and, and in, where he goes next, he's going to cut right to the heart, right to the heart of the matter, just like a skilled surgeon. He says, okay, well, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Right, you want something to do? Here it is. And in hearing Jesus' answer, we're told that the man was disheartened. It's the image of the sky being filled with dark clouds. His face fell. He must have just felt just kicked in the stomach. The wind knocked out of him. This wasn't the answer he was looking for. At Jesus' call to this man, it should have been good news, right? He had a personal invitation from the Son of God to come and to be one of his disciples. Like this was the opportunity of a lifetime. But instead, he went away sorrowful. And all this man heard from Jesus was sell your stuff. Right? And he missed Jesus' invitation to come and to follow me. Uh, to everyone else, this man seemed to have it all together. Right? He seemed to be a person of integrity and morality. He seemed, he seemed to be a good guy, a good person. And, and, and yet, in the depths of his heart, there was something deeply wrong. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, found in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus famously said, you cannot serve God and money. And the reason Jesus gives is either you will hate the one and you will love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and you will despise the other. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Do you hear what he's getting at? He's saying you can only have 
one ultimate allegiance. You can only have one governing love of your life. And for this man, wealth had preeminence. For all the commandments that this man had kept, for all of his moral excellence, he had forsaken the first and greatest commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The thing that this rich young man lacked, the thing he lacked was not poverty. Poverty doesn't save you any more than riches do. That's not Jesus' point. That's not what he's getting at here. The thing that this man lacked was allegiance to God. He had made an idol of wealth and material possessions, and and his love for, his, his trust in money had surpassed his love for God. And so Jesus' call to this rich young man is to give it up. Right? Give up your love of money. Empty yourself of that which takes preeminence in your life and come and follow me. What is it in your life that fights for ultimate allegiance? What things are you tempted to give preeminence to other than God? Money is certainly not the only thing, but it is the thing that Jesus gets at in this passage. And so we would be, we would be really wise to consider specifically, where does a love of money show up in your life? Do you maybe struggle with constant feelings of financial insecurity? Do you regularly worry about whether you will have enough money for the future? Do you check your retirement funds every day to see how they're doing? Do you struggle with generosity? Do you give only when you have excess or only when you're really, really pressed to give? Do you give only when there's a tax benefit attached to it? Do you have to be in direct control of every dollar you give? Is giving actually a part of your monthly budget? Are you addicted to comfort and pleasure? Do your thoughts constantly turn to the next vacation, the next purchase, the next craving? Do you regularly find yourself envious of what others have? Does the thought of sacrificing your current lifestyle Does that ever cross your mind? If we are not giving in a way that affects our lifestyle, it is a sure sign that the love of money has a foothold in our lives. The best way to free ourselves from the power and the love of money is through generous and sacrificial giving. And so this week, would you take some time to examine your practice of giving? Ask God to show you where you might be serving money instead of God because Jesus says you cannot serve both. Jesus' call to us is the same as his call to this rich young man. His call is give it up. Give up your idols. Empty yourself of that which takes preeminence in your life and come follow Jesus. The path to eternal life is through allegiance to Jesus. It's a narrow path. 
I will give you that. But it's a path that leads to the truly good life. Let's uh, turn our attention now to the second scene in this passage, which is Jesus' interaction with the disciples. So after this rich young man rejects Jesus' offer, Jesus sees this as a prime teaching moment, right? And so he, he looks around and he, he gathers his disciples in close uh, and, and he uh, says uh, this in verse 23. He says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And, and it says that when Jesus said this, uh, the disciples were amazed. Right? They, they were astonished. They were, they were terrified. Why? Because they're thinking, look, th- th- this rich young ruler, he had it all. Right? He had moral excellence. He had influence. He was spiritually inclined. He, he, he was ambitious. Right? This guy can make it happen. This guy is the perfect candidate for our Jesus movement. Right? This guy is like number one on the church planning draft board. Right, and you're telling me that he can't get in to the kingdom of God? He can't inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, that's right. In fact, Jesus says, it's not just difficult, it's, it's impossible. Jesus goes on to say, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. A camel was the largest known animal of the day. And so the thought of getting this giant camel, humps and all, pushed through the very tip of a needle was, was widely understood as a humorous illustration of, of the impossible. Right? It, it would be like us saying, when hell freezes over, right? or, or, or when pigs can fly, right? meaning it ain't happening. Right? Jesus isn't implying here that it's really, really, really difficult. But you know, maybe if you if you sort of take everything off the camel, maybe if you get him to crouch down, maybe if you try hard enough, you, you don't give up, like maybe you might be able to do it. No, no, Jesus is saying that it is categorically impossible for a man or a woman who trusts in riches to enter the kingdom of God. And, and when Jesus says this, the disciples are just beside themselves. Right, at first they were amazed, but now it says that they are exceedingly astonished. And they say to Jesus in, in desperation, then, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? And you can hear the, the frailty and the vulnerability in their question. Right, they've, they've come to a place of, of helplessness, which I think is the exact place that Jesus is trying to get them. In, in the section right before this, uh, Jesus' interaction with the, the rich young man, there were crowds of people who were bringing their children uh, to come and see Jesus and to be blessed by him. Uh, and the disciples thought that this was a huge waste of time uh, and, and an annoyance. And so they were, they were sort of rebuking and turning people away. Right, but Jesus notices what is, what is happening and he speaks up and he said, no, 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 let the children come to me. Right, do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does, does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. 
How is it that a child receives something? With complete helplessness. Children bring nothing to the table. They are needy and dependent. In contrast, this rich young man was was self-assured and self-reliant. He thought that there was something that he could do to inherit eternal life. But as it turns out, it was his reliance on doing that kept him from it. You see, the thing that keeps you from eternal life, hear me on this, the thing that keeps you from eternal life is not sin. It's your self-righteousness. Like the rich young man, self-righteousness keeps us from following Jesus. So what is that for you? What is it for you that gives you a sense that you're doing okay in life? What do you count on uh, to give you a sense of personal credibility, good standing? Uh, Is it success in your job, your career? Uh, Is it other people's approval or respect? Is it your morality? Is it uh, your acts of kindness and mercy and, and charity towards others? Is it your good theology and intellect? We need to hear this today. There is no amount of doing that you can muster up to make yourself right with God. And if you rely on your doing, it will keep you from following Jesus. Jesus says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for you to be able to do something to inherit eternal life. And like the disciples, we must, we have to ask, then who can be saved? Then who can be saved? Well, Jesus gives us an answer in verse 27. Jesus says, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Entering the kingdom of God, inheriting eternal life is humanly impossible. There's nothing that we can do when it comes to our salvation. We are completely and utterly powerless. But the good news of the gospel is that all things are possible with our God. The gospel is that while we were still powerless, while we were utterly helpless, it was at that time that Christ died for the ungodly. And because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all things are possible, even eternal life. You you see, the promise of eternal life is possible because Jesus is the true rich young ruler. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Jesus is, he's wealthy beyond imagination. It's true. Jesus dwelled with God before the foundation of the world, right? And so Jesus possesses all things because he made all things. And Jesus was willing to do what the rich young ruler was not. He was willing to give it all up. He gave it all away and became utterly impoverished and abandoned for you and me. He left his glory. He left his divine riches, 2 Corinthians 8 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see, Jesus was willing to give up his wealth in order to bring us back to God. And it's only when we realize that Jesus has already given up everything for us that we are able to give up everything for him. And not in order to gain eternal life, but because we already have it. Peter, who was never never one to sort of shy away uh, from a question or a conversation, uh, always looking for a chance to chime in, he does so here as well. And he says, we've left everything and followed you. We've given up everything, Jesus. What about us? Look at Jesus' response in verse 29. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Right? Everyone who gives up that which is valuable in order to follow Jesus ends up gaining many times more. How incredible is the promise of the gospel. Jesus actually fulfills our deepest desires, our deepest longings. It's just not always in the way that, that, he, that we think that he will. Right? He gives us the truly good life. He gives us real wealth. Isn't that amazing? I can personally attest to the fact that following Jesus has made me a rich, a wealthy man. Rich in, in, in friendship and, and family in the body of Christ, rich in experiences and, and, and purpose and meaning in life, but most of all, richness, uh, 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 the richness of knowing Jesus himself. I have been following Jesus for most of my life, and I can truly say that knowing Christ is the greatest treasure I have. Jesus actually made this same promise of wealth and to the young man in our story. In verse 21, he said, he said, you will have treasure in heaven. You will have treasure in heaven. Jesus is saying to him, you will have great riches. And best of all, by following me, you will have me, the highest and greatest treasure. You see, Jesus wasn't asking this rich young man to become poor. He was asking him to redefine what it means to be rich. But in order to do so, the man had to realize his own poverty. He had to realize his own need and turn to Jesus. And the call is the same to us. Confess your poverty. Confess your need to God and turn to Jesus for the riches of life that are found only in him. Let's do that now. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.